Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Uh, Today, we're going to jump in and discuss uh, the state of Russia-Europe relations. Um, And in the United States, we've been in a prolonged period of confrontation with Russia. Relations have been bad. Tensions have been high uh, for some time, um, certainly since 2016. Um, And although Russia-Europe relations have been strained, um, one could argue, um, even deteriorating, especially since 2014, that things, though, had been relatively better off. Um, And now I think we have a question of whether or not that's changing. Um, There's been a rapid deterioration in Russia-Europe relations in recent months, especially in the wake of Navalny's poisoning. Uh, And, you know, other key markers, the EU foreign policy chiefs, Burrell's trip to Moscow, Lavrov's statements calling Europe an unpredictable partner. Uh, Now we're seeing the EU with a new uh, round of sanctions on Russia, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And so we kind of wanted to jump into the state of affairs. And to do that, we have two amazing experts on Russia and Europe and Russia-Europe relations. I'm really happy to uh, welcome both Kadri Leek and Dmitry Trenin. So Dmitry, Kadri, welcome. Thank you. Great to be on the panel. Uh, Just uh, by very brief way of background, I'll say Kadri Leek is a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, and Dmitry Trenin is the director of the Carnegie Center uh, in Moscow, where he also chairs the Research Council and the Foreign and Security Policy Program. So with that, let's just get down to it. And maybe, Kadri, we can start with you. If you kind of just give us an overview of where we are, uh, and kind of the, the current state of Europe-Russia relations as you see it? Well, I think we are not in a good place. I think everyone in Europe is confused and disappointed after the treatment that Moscow gave to Josef Perel in, in early February. And I, I assume that Dmitry can maybe tell us in more detail why that happened because that was unexpected even given given the the cool background of of a world relationship and as i see it as russia watcher based in europe i think there are two trends feeding into russia's thinking about europe one is rooted in foreign policy logic and you can see the foreign policy debate in russia is increasingly focused on almost neo-isolationism. Feeling in Moscow seems to be that the world is in flux. Europe especially is a moving target. It is unclear whether Europe becomes a political actor of significance. So why should we invest in our relationship with Europe Mm. longer term if we don't know whether it will even be there in in its current shape of the European Union? Russia took notice of Brexit for a long time. They thought that this was only the start of fragmentation. and, and Reese's thoughts have not disappeared. So there is some foreign policy trend. And then, of course, that is now combined with domestic policy. Uh, the Kremlin's legitimacy among population is, is eroding. 
the regime is tired. That's quite quite visible. They have lost their creativity, and that's why all small protests tend to simmer on for a long time. And I guess that is what makes them nervous. And and now with Joe Biden, president of America. There seems to be a certain fear in Moscow that soon the West will again start telling Russia how they need to live, how they need to organize their elections, their politics. I think they actually see it more than there is. Uh, but that makes them edgy and defensive. And I guess that was a background to Borrell visit. And now Europe, of course, is confused because Europe you know, Europe for a long time had debates as to how to view Russia. There was a number of countries that until 2011 or even 2014 thought that Russia was sort of democratizing and westernizing. Only Crimea annexation really, uh, or maybe Putin's return to office in 2011, but, but Crimea annexation in 2014 fi uh, finalized the understanding that Russia was moving along a different route. And ever since, actually, you know, Europe has been united in its assessment of Russia, but we haven't really been sure as to what to do with it. And there are different proposals. There are the Baltic states and Poland who think that we need to sanction Russia more and more until it starts behaving. There are leaders like Macron, uh, President Macron of France, who thinks that, that we need to talk with Russia as it is and try to get Russia to our side in, in forthcoming confrontation between America and China. There is Germany who believes in cooperation. You, you need to maintain dialogue. You need to cooperate. Maybe that leads to something bigger. But for the moment, frankly, I don't see any of these approaches working. That's great, Kadri, and I definitely want to come back to kind of whether or not we're seeing a shift in the European landscape on Russia. You touched on that a little bit. We'll want to dive into it. But Dimitri, give us the picture from Moscow and also hopefully pick up on Kadri's question too about kind of what you think was driving uh, Lavrov's treatment of Burrell during that visit. Well, I think that um, actually the treatment that Burrell was accorded in Moscow was uh, uh, all nice and smiles almost uh, compared to the treatment he got in the European Parliament. I think the real scandal did not break out in Moscow, it broke out in Europe. Um, when I watched the press conference of Borrell and Lavrov in Moscow, it was a, a decent event. Uh, they uh, talked about um, areas of collaboration, they acknowledged uh, serious differences, but uh, the 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 tenor of the meeting was uh, fairly constructive. However, I agree with uh, many things that uh, Kadri has said. What the Russians um, um, did not like, to put it very mildly, is uh, Borrell and uh, those in the European Union who uh, later chastised Borrell. Uh, seeking to, um, from the Russian perspective, interfere in uh, uh, Russian domestic politics. So Navalny is not uh, a case for international relations. Navalny is a domestic, a domestic Russian problem, as seen from the Kremlin. Uh, and uh, that's why uh, a very serious rebuff followed uh, this intense interest that uh, so many Europeans took in 
uh, Navalny's case. Uh, what uh, the, the signal that Moscow uh, sent to Brussels uh, using Borrell's visit was uh, to expel three European countries' diplomats from Moscow for having um, been in the streets with uh, the protesters during the uh, uh, Navalny, uh, pro-Navalny demonstrations. Uh, in broader sense, Russia sees that the European Union, meaning the, uh, the uh, collective structure, the integrated structure uh, of the EU as a drag on the relationship. They very much prefer having bilateral relations with the countries that value their connections with Russia. Because when you deal with the European Union as a whole, <clears throat> then given European solidarity, it is the minimum uh, degree of uh, um, uh, interaction that uh, all countries uh, can agree upon. Uh, essentially Poland and uh, the Baltic states and some other countries uh, that bear historical grud grudge against Russia have a, a veto on uh, relations uh, with Russia, at least as seen from, uh, from Moscow. Uh, so no, no more lecturing Russia, thank you very much. Uh, we're not interested and if you come for that, um, well, there's not much that we can talk about. Uh, and very lastly, I would say that the underlying reason for the, and this is something that uh, Kadri has touched upon, the underlying reason of this uh, breakdown in relations between Russia and Europe is the lack of a, a firm foundation for that relationship. Ever since the end of the Cold War, it was, uh, as Kadri said very rightly, it was the Europeanization of Russia that served as a basis for Russian-European uh, relations. So Russia uh, was uh, moving or was seen as moving or was expected to move in the direction uh, of other former communist countries in Europe, seeking to become like, uh, like the, the core members of the EU. Now this ended um, uh, at about the time, uh, finally ended at about the time of the Ukraine crisis. Actually, it ended a bit earlier than that. And uh, since then, we don't have really a basis for the relationship. And that, expect, that explains the confusion that Kadri is talking about. As far as Russia is concerned, Russia has pivoted away from Europe to itself. It's no longer Russia seeking to look like Europe. Russia wants to look like Russia. It doesn't want to be measured uh, by a European stick or any other foreign stick. Uh, it, is, uh, it, it is Russia, will remain Russia. It is not part of Europe in, political, in the political sense, but it stands apart from Europe. It's a neighbor, not, uh, not an area to be Europeanized, quote unquote. Let me stop here. That's great. Um, so one uh, follow up for you, Dimitri. Um, so, but but there does seem to be. So you in, in you you had a great article that you published recently on Russia Europe relations. Thank you, you very much. Thank you for that. Put this in a, in a, in the context though that we have had this broader decline in in Russia Europe relations, and you talk about Skripal and 
um, some spying cases and corruption cases and others that have kind of tarred some European countries' views of Russia. But but it does seem with in the in the wake of Navalny's poisoning um, and with the Burrell visit, um, a more antagonistic confrontational tone coming from Moscow. And I guess, you know, is part of that stemming from what you're talking about in the sense that Russia just wants to look like Russia and picking up on, Kadri was talking about this kind of neo-isolationist tone in Russian foreign policy. Given kind of Russia's interest in maintaining its own kind of unique cultural civilizational identity, is, is that the conclusion though that, that, that the Kremlin has drawn is that they're just gonna kind of, um, they're willing to issue those closer ties and relations with Europe. I guess I, it's a long meandering question of just trying to get at the reason why you think it's taken on kind of a more confrontational tone um, in the last several weeks. Well, uh, Andrea, I would say that the tone, um, when, when, when you say tone, rhetoric, and, or things like that, you're talking political theater. The tone is, 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 the, tone is the tactic. And uh, it's not because they're angry or because they are beside themselves or because they're losing their cool or, or anything like that. Uh, it is uh, that they are using the stone precisely to send a message to the Europeans and I think to the Americans as well, that if you want to come and lecture us, uh, stay at home. We're not interested and uh, times have gone uh, and will not come back when we listened to you, when we regarded you as mentors, when we uh, tried to, to, to look like you, behave like you, uh, thought that your democracy is, uh, is, the, is the pinnacle of human civilization and things like that. We learned something in the 30 years since the downfall of the Soviet Union. And I think uh, they believe that they have a much more realistic view of what Europe or the United States or the work, the collective West are all about. So that's that's the message. And to be heard in the West, uh, you employ strong language because this is what is picked up by the media. If when you are nice, when you say nice and pleasant things or, or when you say things in a very restrained fashion, people are not taking attention, not taking attention, not, not paying attention to that, not taking note of that. But if you say something like we're breaking off relations or on the, on the brink of breaking off relations with the European Union, and everyone is, uh, you know, up, up in arms and everyone is, is listening. Uh, that's a tactic. Well, I know Jim wants to jump in. Can I just ask a quick yes, yes. finger to Kadri to say, do you think that then that the Kremlin kind of misplayed or overstated the case and that it's having... Uh, the consequence in Europe of actually galvanizing or um, bringing Europeans closer together in a more united position on Russia? Yes, I would say that has been the effect now because the Foreign Affairs Council, where we just uh, had, um, I think everyone was quite downbeat about Russia and, and critical. So there was significant amount of unanimity, uh, negative sort of unanimity when it came to Russia. I'm not sure if that was the intended result um, or not, but, but that is clearly what, what happened with countries that have been uh, suggesting dialogue with Russia, increased selective engagement and so forth. They were sort of uh, 
forced to tone their rhetoric down for a while. Uh, but, but let me just say uh, again, I, uh, this is just tremendous and I wish we had two hours, but let me, Kadri, let me, you, you tweeted something, I think it was yesterday, um, talking about uh, how resets uh, fail, why resets fail, and particularly why um, in terms of Russia, I believe this is what you were getting at, in terms of Russia, um, Russian attempts at resets don't work. So we're, because right now, these questions that we're talking about, Burrell's visit, the Biden administration coming online, we're looking at a time where one might hear, uh, as we heard at the very beginning of the first Obama term, you know, they had a reset. Well, you're not hearing that from the Biden uh, administration. They're not talking about resets. They, they've come in with this stern tone. Dimitri talked about uh, out of Moscow, it's a stern tone as well. Burrell got that stern tone. He went back to Brussels and there was a stern tone came out of that. So it doesn't look like there's a reset on the horizon anywhere. But Kadri, but to what you tweeted, give us an idea of, of how resets don't work anyway or when they do work. Yes, I um, actually tweeted my colleague's article about why resets don't work. And Nico Papesco has given an overview of that. Um, however, I think that not every uh, rapprochement or attempt of it with Russia should be called reset. I even had um, a long conversation about Obama's reset with Jeremy Shapiro, who worked at the State Department at the time, uh, to understand how they conceptualized it. Because right now, and that sometimes irritates me a little bit, we, we call everything reset. Right. And, and that's really not the case. So Obama, Obama's reset was sort of the original reset, and that was an attempt to take to change the tone of the relationship and to cooperate on issues where there was unanimity or sort of objective overlap of interests and to limit rhetoric around irritants and negativities. I think that was actually somewhat misread by, by some in Russia. Someone who at the time worked with President Putin said that they had thought that Russia was finally granted great power status on par with America. They were later very disappointed when they understood it was only about a limited set of issues. So it was somehow misunderstood. Um, I think about sort of Russia's research towards Russia, Dmitry could tell us actually more interestingly. I mean, Dmitry has once had that concept, but the whole Dmitry Medvedev's presidency was Putin's attempt to see how, what in principle can be done in cooperation with the West, which then again was not understood as such in, in, uh, in the West. The West thought that, yeah, well, Medvedev is a nice president, we like him, but should it really work the way that you appoint someone and then call him back? That's not how we understand democracy and elections. So, you know, Russia's attempt at reset was also misconceptualized or, or miscommunicated to us. So we have been misreading each other's intentions on, on numerous occasions. Right. If there is anything good about the current bleak situation, it is that... Um, maybe the realities are, are more clear uh, to, to us on both sides. I think that's right. I think that's right. Dimitri, to, to what extent 
do you think that the tone coming out of Moscow is stems from what's happening domestically? I mean, do you get the sense that there is more paranoia and concern in the Kremlin and therefore more desire to kind of shut down relations with Europe, with Europe and these countries that now the, the Kremlin sees as potentially destabilizing for Russia? Um, yeah, the question really is really about to what extent does this emanate from Putin's own domestic standing? Well, I think it's a very good question. Um, I believe that the reading in the Kremlin of the Biden administration is that uh, Biden will extend the front line of confrontation with Russia. He will uh, bring it to the areas that uh, were neglected under Trump. One area is Russia's domestic politics. Uh, the other area is uh, Russia's uh, um, multiple neighborhoods. With regard to domestic politics, um, uh, of course, you, 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 you will realize that uh, Biden's term completely overlaps with the rest of Putin's term, current term. And important decisions uh, will be made in Russia between now and 2024. Again, I'm not suggesting that uh, Putin will leave uh, the stage or leave the presidency in 2024, but a Russian leadership transition is a process. It's not an event. And there are stages along that process that will uh, determine the, uh, not only the personalities that will emerge as um, um, heirs to uh, Mr. Putin's uh, uh, power position, but also the direction of Russia's uh, domestic policies and Russia's foreign policy. So it's a very important uh, period, the next several years. And the idea in, in, in Russia is that uh, Mr. Biden uh, will uh, mobilize uh, America's European allies to exert maximum pressure on Russia so that the leadership change in Russia uh, leads to results that are favorable for the United States. Uh, and Navalny is seen, and he is uh, he's officially branded, uh, essentially a foreign agent of influence. Uh, so many other uh, protest activists, uh, foreign-funded NGOs and others with connections to the West, which people don't hide and are real, uh, that these people are part of a, of a drive uh, by the West, directed by the United States, to uh, use uh, multiple influencers within Russia to impact on the Russian leadership transition. And you would realize that there's nothing more important than, uh, than, than this leadership transition in, in Russia. And second of all, um, uh, the developments uh, last fall in um, several places along Russia's uh, uh, border in Europe, Belarus, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, but also Russia's, uh, uh, Russia, Russia, in Russia's Central Asian neighborhood in Kyrgyzstan, um, have uh, uh, raised questions about uh, foreign influence. I think you can only argue with any any degree of evidence that there was sympathy and some, um, uh, I would say, uh, uh, moral support 
maybe a bit more than that, but not 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 something very very significant coming from the West uh, for Belarusian protesters. But certainly, Belarusian opposition uh, was uh, w- uh, they they exiled them or were exiled or exiled themselves to Europe, and they operate from Europe, which paints the picture of uh, the opposition being in cahoots uh, with the West. And uh, especially Belarus is seen as, uh, uh, as, as, uh, as a place, as an area that uh, some people, it, it is argued, in the West would want to turn into another Ukraine. So there's a feeling that uh, uh, the West is, uh, the United States, uh, are becoming more active in the former Soviet Union and uh, that would have strategic implications, particularly in Belarus for Russia. So call it paranoia, call it uh, exaggerated concerns, call it uh, legitimate concerns, whatever you want to call it. Uh, this is the other factor that is also present here. The other dimension of this that I find really interesting is that it is Um, opposite of what I had expected for the trajectory of Russia-Europe relations. And I say that in the context of some work that we've been doing on Russia-China relations. And I think there was some expectation, at least on my part, that, you know, for those in Russia who may be concerned about Russia's growing reliance or, you know, dependence on China, um, that a hedging strategy that would see Russia deepening relations with countries uh, in Europe, with India, Japan, for example, would take on increasing importance as a way to hedge against this growing asymmetry that we see in the relationship with China. So this runs in in my thinking, you know, was it was in contravention to what I had expected. And so, Dimitri, I guess my question for you is whether or not there are concerns in Russia among foreign policy thinkers uh, that this this actions, this step, this trajectory is limiting Russia's options for the future, especially in light of that relationship with China. Well, let me say this. Uh, You're right. Uh, Russia's reliance on China is growing. I think you're also right in uh, at least suggesting that uh, uh, this reliance uh, may exceed what uh, some sensible Russians would regard as uh, safe. Uh, but uh, I think I would take issue with uh, with the notion that Russia is neglecting uh, its other options. Uh, the situation is more complex than that. Uh, Russia certainly wanted to have uh, more relations with Europe, but uh, uh, unfortunately for Russia, uh, and uh, we can discuss whether Russia played uh, uh, a role or played uh, uh, too uh, much or went too far in, in, in engaging itself in some gains uh, within Europe. Uh, but, this, the, but the relationship with European countries has been, has been souring. And uh, Europe uh, was becoming more and more, uh, as Lavrov said, quote unquote, unreliable partner meaning that Europe was uh, imposing more and more sanctions on Russia. Uh, Mind you that uh, uh, all these uh, uh, stories about uh, poisonings, whether it's Navalny, whether it's Skripal, uh, they're very very murky stories, frankly. It's uh, intelligence gains. It's, uh, I don't want to go into that, but uh, I don't have a clear-eyed picture of what happened 
in uh, in in, in uh, Salisbury, what happened uh, in Tomsk, and what happened before that or after that. I think it's it's very very confusing situations, uh, both of them. But uh, the what what's important is that the result has been the um, the end of Russia's. Um, um, formerly very strong relations with Europe, particularly with Germany. And the, the Russian-German relationship that grew out of, uh, uh, of uh, Russia's um, very um, gracious behavior toward Germany uh, at the time when Germany was getting uh, reunified in 89 and 90. Uh, there was uh, a time when Germany was Russia's best advocate in Europe, uh, Russia uh, relied on Germany more than on anyone else. It was like, uh, you know, like a couple for, for a few years, maybe until the mid 2000s. Uh, later on, the situation began to change for a number of reasons. Again, we don't have the time to go into that. But uh, the, uh, the Navalny case, uh, I think, uh, drove the final nail into the coffin of uh, German-Russian post-Cold War partnership. So, um, there's not much to expect from Europe, frankly, if they uh, sanction you, if they line up uh, whenever there is uh, um, some case like, uh, like Salisbury or, or, or Navalny in Tomsk. Uh, Russia hoped that Germany and France would help, would help it deal with, uh, uh, with the Donbass crisis in Ukraine, but it turned out that whatever their private thoughts, uh, the Germans and the French always back the Ukrainians. Whatever the Ukrainians do, whatever the Russians do, Ukrainians are always right, always. And Russians are, all, Russians are always in the wrong. And, uh, and, and uh, the hopes that were originally pinned on the Europeans um, have evaporated. Japan, unfortunately, uh, I think Putin was uh, serious um, when he uh, engaged uh, uh, with Prime Minister Abe on the peace treaty, but uh, the intensifying U.S.-Russia confrontation led to the uh, factor of uh, U.S.-Japan relations and uh, U.S. stationing or U.S. right to station its forces anywhere in the uh, Japanese territory. And that became a stumbling block in the uh, process of uh, leading to eventually to a, to a peace treaty and block that process. India, yes, uh, yes. And I think that the Russians are not doing enough to expand and deepen their relations with India. Now they have, they're facing more uh, competition from the United States and India. This is not uh, America's fault. This is, uh, this is all very, very natural in terms of uh, geopolitical games that big nations play uh, in that part of the world, China, India, Conflict, U.S.-China uh, uh, confrontation. The, these, uh, there, there's a natural uh, meeting between uh, Delhi and, and Washington, but um, uh, but there's unfortunately not enough that's being done. However, having said all that, Russia is not sitting on its hands. Uh, some useful relationship relationships have been struck with the Koreans. If you cannot do that with Japan, you can do it with South Korea. Uh, UAE, interestingly enough, has become uh, an important, interesting partner for Russia. In some other some other ways, Turkey. So Russia is diversifying, but it's diversifying within uh, the sector of the world primarily. That is not 
um, uh, that, that is not populated by America's allies because within alliances, you have discipline and discipline would prevent uh, Russia from having full-fledged relationships uh, with those countries. If I have a, have a sec, uh, let me just say something which I consider very important. Uh, the problem uh, in Russia-Europe relations has been that the two countries, uh, the two partners want very different things out of the relationship. For the Europeans, the most important thing is that Russia becomes uh, uh, modernized um, in, in the European fashion, becoming more of a democracy, more like us. Uh, for Russia, the relationship is uh, almost exclusively about economic and technological benefits that Russia can draw from, from that relationship. But that's the mismatch. And this mismatch will continue to, uh, to weigh uh, uh, above the relationship. Maybe it will frame the relationship. There's something that still can be done within that framework but not, 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 not as much as either side would want. But why does it have to be a mismatch? Why can't there be a coexistence of those two views? Um, you know, and, and it takes me to a larger question too. Um, you know, like Kadri said, we're, we're talking past one another. Uh, and also uh, you've laid out uh, a, a, a list of grievances and problems and perceptions uh, the paranoia that's grown from these um, that I think Europeans and Americans would shake their heads and go, no, you know, it's we, we seem to be in a place where not only um, are we talking past one another, but we can't even coexist. Um, I, I, and so let me let me just say that uh, this kind of trajectory uh, is, is not a good one. Uh, we have we been able to to coexist with one another, to live with one another since the end of World War II uh, uh, through always trying to achieve stability, uh, to always trying to make sure that uh, no matter how different we are, uh, that we're able to at least uh, at least um, coexist. Um, I won't get all into IR theory and that kind of thing, but, but Kadri, starting with you and, and then to Dimitri, so what do we do about this? This is a tangled up ball of, of problems with Europe and the US and with Russia. How do you untangle this to the point where we can at least have stability, understanding that we might not always get along, that we will always have our conflicts, that politically it's difficult for us, Europe and the US and Russia to politically come together and do this without opposition saying, you're being soft, you're caving in. It's a very difficult thing to do, but, but this trajectory is unsustainable that we are on. So Kadri, what do we do? I think we should first calm down <laughs> because it's, <laughs> I, I don't, frankly, I do not think it is so tragic. It, it is true that we have been misreading one another and there have been many, uh, many fr frustrated hopes, but I, you know, I say hopes now in that frustration. I recently wrote that Dmitry's request a piece to Carnegie where I try to argue in the Russia-Baltic context, but it, it has sort of wider point that frustrated maximalism could actually lead to pragmatic cooperation. You know, we have seen that we cannot change Russia to our liking. And, and Russia has seen or will see that, you know, European Union will not 
stop being a community of values and disintegrate into nation states, as maybe some people in the Kremlin expect to happen. And that should force both of us to accept that if we can't change the other, then we, we need to somehow yeah, coexist. And Dmitry has been cultivating a term for it, neighborliness. Um, Dmitry, right. by the way, that is actually understood differently by different people. I just had a conversation with some high-ranking diplomat in Moscow who said that, you know, that refers to good neighborliness, that we are good neighbors, but we are not very good. And I have never understood it as such because, you know, my roots are in a small Estonian village where all households are, are very close together. And that means uh, you're so exposed to your neighbors that you're incentivized to stay in speaking terms, whether you like it or not. Maybe especially if you don't like them, you need to be cautious and restrain yourself because it's in the countryside. That means you will always need them. If you are snowed in or someone needs to be taken to hospital or, or weather is so bad that you cannot, you cannot cross the sea. I mean, neighbors are really crucial to your existence. And... And, and that's why you need to sort of invest in the relationship, even if you don't like, and even if you are not sort of good neighbors in, in the best sense of the word. So I think, I think that'll happen. And uh, I think we should, Europeans really should be calm about Russia, not try to over-conceptualize it, not try to sort of, uh, build huge theories in the style of President Macron. I, I can see why where he's coming from. Why does he want to uh, achieve these things with Russia that he thinks about? But I don't see it working right now because Russia doesn't see it that way. But also I think President Putin's ideas about Europe are not, not necessarily correct. So time will take care of, of much of that. And um, and abusing time now myself, I think actually one thing that we in the West should think about is exactly how to work with Russian society or democracy promotion, because that's a sensitive point right now, as, as Dmitry explained. And, and I think there is a debate in Washington as well with Biden administration, how should we go about it? What should we do? And I think your podcast is a good venue uh, to, to say that I don't think we can go about it the way we used to, you know, right. turning up in Russia, Westerners saying that we are so wise and so wonderful, but you need to do what we tell you. Right, right. We'll be laughed at. And, and Russian civil society has been overexposed to that sort of rhetoric. That's not the way to do. I, I think we need to make our own societies work at home and Russians actually follow us fairly diligently. They notice if we you know, deliver on our rhetoric or not. They, uh, they call our bluff when, when it is present, but they also see when, when we are not bluffing, but, but actually doing what we, we claim to do. And I think there is a new phenomenon in Russia. Um, what I noticed it when I was working on a paper about younger generation of Russian diplomats. There are many of them who are sort of pro-democracy, who would want to see Russia democratizing, rule of law being in place, rotation of power, so forth. But they do not see the West as, as a role model. You know, it's 
it's not exactly anti-Western democracy, but, but very something. You can be pro-rule of law, but skeptical of the West. And it's not necessarily bad. I mean, Russia can democratize as Russia. It doesn't need to become another replica of the West or, or democratize in the style that, that Central Europe went through. And yeah. that is totally fine. We shouldn't, we shouldn't try to go back to the era of, of Obama or, or Bill Clinton and, and, and start again trying democratizing Russia as we did back then. I think circumstances have changed and, and, and it's not so much worse what, what we are seeing now. I think you could make a point that actually homegrown democracy is better than imported one. That's excellent. That is, that, that, that's a wonderful, wonderful uh, intervention there. Kadri. And so, Dimitri, what do you think about uh, neighborliness? Is that something uh, you coined the phrase and now Kadri has filled it out? Uh, do you think Moscow would uh, would embrace being a good neighbor or at least a neighbor well, who is concerned about the other neighbors? Uh, well, Jim, I hope I don't offend you if I say that uh, what you said before, bef uh, before introducing, uh, before giving the floor to uh, Kadri, uh, is very much in line with uh, what uh, level-headed Russians would uh, suggest. And uh, you would be using exactly the arguments that uh, you were using the arguments exactly the same that they would have, would be using. Uh, you said coexistence, so we used to coexist even when Russia was called the Soviet Union, why can't we do it now? We used to collaborate even in those years and uh, why can't we do it now? I think that um, uh, uh, my concept of neighborliness is uh, very close to this concept of coexistence, except that when I say coexistence, I immediately remember uh, the phrase peaceful coexistence, which was, yeah. of course, part of the Soviet uh, uh, diplomatic vocabulary in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and uh, and 80s, um, and I don't want to. I don't want that baggage. So neighborliness to me is exactly what Kadri has described. I'm sitting now on my dacha, and I'm surrounded by other dachas and other neighbors. Um, you know, I have a stake in uh, in neighborly relations with all my neighbors. I. Uh, it's not that I like them all. It's not that I support what they're doing, uh, but uh, there is a. There is certainly uh, a need to uh, to respect one another, to uh, in in other words, to accept diversity as a fact. I think that uh, what the Russians are militating against, at least at the propaganda level, is that uh, uh, by expanding, uh, promoting democracy, uh, the West would want to. Um, spiritually and politically colonize us, if you like, uh, you know, um, a, a parallel to the, uh, to the communist system when we uh, promote communism somewhere, all those newly born communist uh, countries, communist states look to us as the role model and we have political influence over them. So to me, respect for diversity is the central pillar of neighborliness, followed by good fences. We need to know where, uh, where it's safe uh, to go, where it's not safe to go. And uh, that, that is not only about borders, 
in the physical sense, but about many other things. What is allowed to do um, uh, with respect uh, to your neighbor, what is not allowed to do, even where borders uh, are not drawn or are, or are invisible. Then there are some cross-border issues. Uh, we cannot control climate. Uh, none of us can, but together we can do something that would be in our common interest. And since we live side by side as neighbors, uh, Europe and Russia, uh, there's, a, there's, there's something that we could and should do together. And then there's, uh, there, there's a whole field of pragmatic uh, uh, cooperation. There are certain things that it would make sense uh, for all of us, to, or many of us, or several of us, to come together and, and do jointly rather than to try to do those things uh, separately. It's still not good neighborliness. It's, it's only neighborliness because good neighborliness, neighborliness uh, means uh, a lot of other things like historical reconciliation and there's a lot to be done in that field. It, it's, it's still over the horizon. Uh, it, it will take uh, generations and generations to come to that. But some of the easier things, uh, I believe, are in principle within reach. But as Kadri said very rightly, uh, promotion of Western democracy in Russia is uh, one of the irritants uh, in the relationship that uh, does not benefit the West very much, but uh, enrages so many uh, on the Russian side that see it as a, uh, as a way to... Um, to impose uh, uh, not only uh, a Western-style regime on them, but uh, impose a Western influence uh, on Russia. So, um, yeah, I think I, I will stop there. It's really a, a great discussion. And I guess maybe as of kind of a final question, um, as you're both just taking Jim's question and making it a little bit more specific, if we're moving towards a concept of good neighborliness, um, what are some of the concrete things that you think maybe Kadri on your side for the European side and Dimitri for, from your perspective, what the Kremlin might be willing to do to move in that direction? It doesn't feel at this time like that that is necessarily the trajectory of, of sentiment on either side. It still seems like tensions are high. Um, there, you know, kind of a move towards a more confrontational position from the European Union with the new sanctions. Um, so in your mind, what would be one or two things that appear to be most ripe that could help move the relationship in that direction? I do really love this idea of good fences. I mean, I think that's one of the places that does seem like there's a lot of room for um, progress, you know, good fences in the Arctic. What are the rules of the road? What, how should we engage, not engage rules of the road? Good fences in the cyber domain. Um, so there does seem like there are some fruitful things there, but Kadri, if, there's maybe low hanging fruit is not probably the right term, um, but some of the things that you think are most likely or actionable in the near term from the European side that could help move things in that direction. Wasn't it Carl Sandburg who said, good fences make good neighbors? Do I have that right? So I think you're here. Yeah. Indeed. Well, I think um, in near term, um, you see, the difficulty with near term for the European Union is that the European Union is a different type of foreign policy actor. It doesn't have the sort of leverage in foreign mm -hmm. policy like nation states have. 
so the influence Europe is going to have vis-a-vis -vis Russia will always be rooted in, in the world order and the values that inform it. And that's in flux right now. It hasn't crystallized. Um, but, you know, value-based world order would, would give the European Union some reputational power. And, and that would make other countries to think that, mm, maybe I shouldn't cross European Union too harshly. Because, you know, we will never be in the position to sort of engage militarily the way others do, or, or sort of even, uh, even high stakes diplomacy is sometimes possible, but often, oftentimes problematic. So I think we should actually acknowledge that our leverage is always based on, 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 on those other issues and, and accept it as a fact and not see it too tragic if there is not very much we can do right now. What I could do, I think we should really give up uh, yeah, old or artificial concepts that, that are still linked to that relationship. Uh, I mean, Dmitry said very correctly, the whole idea that Russia will become like Europe. I mean, Russia doesn't want right now. And us demanding it doesn't make Moscow want it, rather, rather vice versa. I mean, drop it. Or, 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 or how we conceptualize it, how we think that, you know, we need to do dialogue, we need to do engagement, when we do sanctions, as if, you know, fox ticking, we do that and that and that. It's, uh, it just doesn't make sense to me. Think of what it is we want to get from Russia. And then, you know, how you go about it. Do, do you talk? Do you, do you threaten? What's your leverage? How to get it? So I, I think quick, Kadri, just sorry, because yeah. since both you and Dimitri have raised this, is it that Moscow and the Kremlin specifically doesn't want to be more like Europe? Like, do you, do you think that there still is a desire of Russians, Russian citizens to be more like Russia? Would they like to see more democracy, human rights? I guess so there is, you know, there's obviously a distinction between the Kremlin and Russians. And is it just that the Kremlin doesn't want to be more like Europe or, and, and what, what, is, what do you think that actually Russians, how, how would they um, say the direction that they want to move? They aspire to. Yeah, well, many would say they want to be like Europe. And, you know, looking around how many of them have emigrated to, to Germany, um, where I'm now based, I um, I think they they have come to sort of European dem uh, experience of 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 social democracy or, or something like that. And by the way, Russian emigres in, in in Berlin and in London are, are are two different tribes. I I guess it's it's true of elsewhere as well. But you know they they do not accept the West as as telling them how to become. Uh, Europe or, 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 or democracy. So I have long been thinking that actually, you know, um, we should stop sort of preaching to them and, and, and lecturing. Instead, I think it could be useful if we discuss fairly honestly with them our mistakes or the roots of our policy making. And, and that makes me much more interested. I even have a story to illustrate. I, I remember in my childhood home in Soviet Estonia, Voice of America was on all the time. And all these sort of cracks and creeks were very cool, but I don't, you know, 
I didn't remember anything of what they said. None of it stuck in my long-term memory, with one exception. In January 1986, the Estonian broadcast opened by reporting the launch of Space Shuttle Challenger. And before it ended, it was reported that it had perished. And that, I still get shivers. I, I remember it so clearly, and it wasn't just the trauma of, of you know, the tragedy of it, but it was also the fact that they reported it just like that, in real time, without spin, without editing. That left impression. And sometimes I wonder, you know, whether our sort of efforts to democratize Russia should not be more similar to, to that example. Just be honest and, and expose your own virtues as well as flaws. Yeah, so Dimitri, I don't know if you wanna kind of wrap, take us home to get us to the finish line with any thoughts for, you know, on the side of the Kremlin, what, what they may or may be willing to do to move more in that direction of good neighborliness. And what Russians aspire to. Well, I think that, um, I, I'll come to that in a sec, but uh, let me say that if I were advising the Kremlin, I would say never think about, never think for others, what they want or what they don't want. Uh, otherwise, you would be uh, reaching out to those who, to you, seem to be on the opposite side in domestic politics from the people you are competing against uh, or you see as adversaries, etc. Um, it, it, it's, I, I don't, I wouldn't advise the West to um, think what's best for the Russian people. Let the Russian people decide themselves. Similarly, I would, I would say to the Russian decision makers, don't, uh, don't you ever attempt to play on, on the 75 million Americans who voted for Donald Trump or for the people who vote for uh, Alternativa für Deutschland, or those who vote uh, for uh, Marine Le Pen in France. Uh, let France, Germany, and the United States deal with those domestic uh, uh, fissures. That's not that's none of our business. Um, I would say that to get to neighborliness, uh, you first uh, make sure that uh, you're safe. Uh, meaning that uh, uh, you engage in confidence-building measures in uh, all sorts of uh, contacts, communications that pre would prevent incidents, uh, escalations, and other stuff that can get you uh, where you don't want to go. Uh, so that's that's number one: safe safe uh, fences, if you like. Uh, then there are certain things that uh, may. Uh, may uh, create openings or where openings may be created for some uh, joint uh, conflict management, conflict resolution, at least uh, preventing uh, conflicts from getting worse. When I look at the, uh, at the map of Europe, uh, the thing that stands out to me is Transnistria. Uh, this, is, this is a conflict that I think could be dealt with a little bit more um, creatively uh, by the Russians and the Europeans, and of course the Americans who will always be um, uh, engaged one way or another. Uh, I said, stop doing uh, stupid things like, um, uh, you know, collect collecting intelligence is a time-honored 
uh, activity, and I do not suggest that it stops, but uh, uh, getting oneself too much involved in other people's politics, domestic politics primarily, is stupid. You you will never be in a position to drive another country's uh, policies, so just stop doing it. And I think there's a little bit too much of that. Maybe in uh, in response to what you think others are doing to you, but it still no, doesn't doesn't look like it's it's a good idea. And finally, I would um, uh, I would engage uh, with uh, the neighbors on the issues that are of common concern. I- interestingly enough, the perhaps the uh, most uh, interesting issue where there is some progress, at least at the intellectual level, at the talking level, right now between Russia and the European Union, is climate. And um, uh, climate change affects Russia. Russia is interested. Uh, and uh, the European Union is concerned. Uh, we, can, we can do some useful stuff there. Public health care, uh, COVID, uh, that I think is, is another area where Russia and the Europeans uh, broadly, including the Brits, can do things together. The Arctic, another area where militarization could be constrained limited and the cooperation in this harsh climate area, cooperation including on environmental issues could be promoted and expanded. Those are the things that do not require any any change in the present policies, that they certainly do not require others being more like you, but uh, neighborliness could uh, rise out of those issues or cooperation on those issues. Yeah, that's really great. And I it's a it's a perfect place to stop. And I agree. I think my mind is kind of in this similar headspace in the sense that finding those, the key will be finding those areas of overlap, whether it's climate, Arctic, public health, and then hopefully building out from there over time. But we have to start with those more kind of pragmatic spaces. The hard part is, is that the ground where that where the where that overlap is 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 narrowing. Um, but you've highlighted some really excellent places. And so kind of working on those shared interests and also building some of those fences, I think, um, is a really um, prudent way forward. And I, and I would add arms control to that list too. Uh, we've already begun to engage, and I think we've got to return to that being an important route towards strategic stability. Yeah, I think that's- well, I, I agree with that, but that's more of a US-Russian issue yeah. these days, even in Europe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to say a huge thank you both to you, Dimitri, and you, Kadri. This was really a fantastic discussion. Uh, we got to go in a lot of different directions and um, just some really valuable food for thought, I think, for all of our Brussels Sprouts listeners. So thank you to both of you um, and hope we get to see you again soon.